Hello, everybody. My name is Brian McCormack. I'm one of the consultant paediatric surgeons working here in Northern Ireland. Today, I'm going to take this opportunity to take you through three uh, paediatric surgery emergencies, how they present to us, what the initial management and stabilisation looks like, and then discuss how uh, I address the condition surgically. I hope this uh, talk will be helpful to you, and I'm looking forward to discussing it further in the question time at the end. Okay, so the first patient is a two-year-old who presents with a witnessed button battery ingestion having occurred a couple of hours previous. So the symptoms are variable uh, depending on the age and the site of impaction, but often these children will present with either acute GI or acute respiratory symptoms. So on the GI side, you might have dysphagia, uh, drooling, or even odinophagia. Um, on the respiratory side, obviously, you may have dyspnea, um, cough, or strider. And so that's fairly straightforward, but uh, quite commonly these children will present with an unwitnessed ingestion and a variety of the symptoms just discussed, or even uh, things like hematemesis or hemoptysis, chest or abdominal pain, um, or even neck stiffness and neck pain. Um, if a child presents with any of these features um, and there's a possible history of an ingestion, especially in the context of a temperature out of a low threshold to cover them with broad spectrum antibiotics. And obviously our resuscitation follows APLS guidelines. Um, and the thing to remember is if the ingestion is thought to have occurred or the symptoms have thought to have occurred more than 12 hours previously and we're suspecting a foreign body, um, a CT scan can be really helpful to uh, aid further surgical decision making prior to intervention. So I cannot emphasize enough how critical timing and efficiency of decision-making and ultimately removal of the foreign body is in this condition. And that's because severe damage can occur over as little as two hours. We know that the mechanism of damage includes a combination of four main elements. So you've got local pressure necrosis, corrosive damage from leakage of battery content, heavy metal toxicity, and most importantly, electrolysis. So electric current is created between the two terminals of the battery and through the human tissue. Um, a buildup of hydroxide ions um, occurs at the negative terminal, and then that leads to a significant rise in pH and ultimately liquefaction necrosis at the site of impaction. Okay, so after resuscitating your patient as per APLS guidelines, covering with broad spectrum antibiotics, if indicated, uh, the next thing you're going to do is prescribe honey to be ingested every 10 minutes for one hour, um, as long as the ingestion has occurred less than 12 hours previously. So this is designed to neutralize some of the effects of the battery, as we uh, discussed in the previous slide and has been shown to be extremely effective in reducing the severity of the damage for impacted batteries. Obviously, after 12 hours, um, the risk of perforation is considerably higher, and therefore this would not be recommended um, due to that increased risk of perforation if the ingestions occurred more than 12 hours previous. The other thing to mention briefly is that you should have no concerns about the patient's fasting status for a general anaesthetic in the near future because an esophageal foreign body is treated by the anaesthetic team as a unfasted patient. Therefore, they will uh, always undergo a rapid sequence induction of anaesthesia. So prescribing honey uh, makes no difference to the timing of surgery. And so the first thing you're going to do is 10 mils of honey every 10 minutes for one hour.
Okay, so the next thing that you're going to prescribe is sucralfate, 10 mils to be ingested every 10 minutes for up to 30 minutes. Again, in the context of a child who's ingested a button battery less than 12 hours previously. And this provides a second evidence-based method to protect the esophagus from some of the mechanisms of damage from the button battery and is recommended in international guidelines. Okay, so the ESPAGAN guidelines also recommend a two-view radiograph of the chest, and that's to include both an AP view and a lateral view. So the lateral view is very helpful in determining whether it's in the anteriorly placed trachea or the posteriorly placed esophagus. In the trachea, um, foreign bodies tend to be orientated in the sagittal plane due to the relative laxity of the posterior wall of the trachea and the uh, firm cartilaginous rims anteriorly, whereas in the esophagus, they tend to be orientated in the coronal plane. So that can be helpful with regard to which tube the uh, foreign body is located in. Um, but also there are some signs that uh, many button batteries will display, not all the time, but you can have an halo sign or an annulus where you've got a darker ring around the rim that represents the rubber insert within the two poles of the button battery. And uh, in the lateral view, some button batteries will have quite an obvious step off sign. So these features can be really helpful in determining the difference between a coin or a button battery. It's just important to know that <clears throat> sometimes button batteries can look extremely similar to coins. And if in doubt, I would assume that it's a button battery unless the history is extremely clear otherwise. So depending on the location of the uh, button battery within the esophagus, um, you will refer uh, to different teams. So if the foreign body is in the proximal esophagus, at or above the level of the clavicles, then you're going to refer urgently as soon as possible to your local ENT surgeon and they will perform a rigid esophagoscopy and retrieval. If the foreign body on the other hand is below the level of the clavicles as in the lower esophagus, then you're going to refer urgently as soon as possible to your paediatric surgeon who will retrieve it via flexible esophagoscopy. Okay, so at endoscopy, if we see severe mucosal damage, such as uh, in this picture, then uh, we leave an isogastric tube down and we repeat the endoscopy two to four days uh, later. In less severe cases, we may simply choose to uh, perform an upper GI contrast swallow um, uh, two to four days later to assess for any early narrowing. The ESPAGAN guidelines also include advice for surgeons to consider uh, irrigation at the time of endoscopy with um, 50 to 150 mils of 0.25% acetic acid in an attempt to try and neutralize some of the damage caused by the um, button battery. Okay, so in the asymptomatic child whose button battery um, is located in the stomach or beyond on the initial imaging, they can be safely discharged with a plan to return in seven days for a repeat abdominal x-ray. If the button battery is still present at that stage, then it should be considered for removal with your local paediatric surgeon. The caveat to this is, of course, they should be given return advice because um, if they develop any symptoms at all, um, they should represent immediately to the emergency department. We know that um, mucosal damage, particularly in the esophagus, can occur very quickly and button batteries can cause this on their way down. And even in an asymptomatic child, they can present with late features of esophageal perforation. So chest pain, uh, respiratory distress, temperatures, 
um, any worrying features, the parents should be crystal clear that they need to return to any immediately. Okay, so onto the second patient. This time they are a five-month-old infant who has presented with bilious vomiting. And this is one of the worrying emergencies that you can call me about as a paediatric surgeon. The first thing to say is that generally we are not good at describing the colour of bile. And so this chart's been sent out to 50 GPs, 50 um, midwives, 50 neonatal nurses and 50 parents. And we asked them what colour was most typical of bile. And 75% uh, of parents, 50% of GPs, a third of midwives and a quarter of neonatal intensive care nurses actually thought that one of the yellow colours was the most typical of bile. So as you know, bile is green and green vomiting makes me very anxious as a surgeon. And um, when we look at the green vomiters that come and see us as an emergency, only about a third of them uh, have a surgical problem. Uh, a third probably have a medical problem such as sepsis and about a third we never find out what causes it. But we treat them all as a potentially life-threatening emergency. So if you learn one thing from this talk, please remember that malrotation and volvulus can be fatal in healthy infants. And it's like any emergency to do with uh, efficiency of timing, diagnosis and management. So we know that uh, normal rotation occurs uh, in the early embryonic period between four and 10 weeks gestation. The gut herniates out through the umbilical cord and then back in. And during that process, it undergoes a 270 degree counterclockwise rotation around the main blood vessel, the superior mesenteric artery. So that gives you the normal orientation in health of a DJ flexure to the left of the L1 vertebrae at the level of the transpyloric plane and the other end of the small bowel mesentery, aka the cecum, being effect, uh, effectively fixed in the right iliac fossa. So the picture on the left of the screen would be normal rotation with a broad uh, base to the small bowel mesentery, whereas the picture on the right of the screen would be typical of what we call non-rotation. You can see all of the small bowel is on the right and all of the large bowel is on the left. This would be very common in uh, abdominal wall defects such as gastroschisis or uh, exomphalus, but also in congenital diaphragmatic hernia. We would consider non-rotation essentially uh, a safe configuration with quite a broad base to the mesentery and no significantly increased risk of volvulus. On the other hand, the um, picture on the left of this screen is a clear description of malrotation, where the small bowel as it starts in the duodenum and then the cecum at the end of the small bowel are nearly overlapping both in the right upper quadrant. And there are bands of tissue across the duodenum called LADS bands, which would be quite common uh, in this condition. And the problem is that the base of the mesentery is extremely narrow and predisposes the child to volvulus, which is uh, described in the picture on the right of the screen where everything's twisted around. We know that um, the incidence of malrotation is about one, to, one in 200 to one in 500 live births, and the risk of neonatal volvulus is about one in 6,000. Okay, so uh, once you've stabilized and resuscitated the patient appropriately, 
um, then usually the next step is to make an immediate transfer to the radiology department for an upper GI contrast study. Now, the first thing to say is there are a small number of patients who will present in the latter stages of septic shock as a consequence of uh, midgut volvulus. So if there's late signs such as abdominal wall erythema, distension or peritonism, then um, I personally would have a very low threshold to uh, take this child directly to the operating table following initial resuscitation. Um, but thankfully, this is extremely rare and more often than not, we can stabilise the child and then make arrangements for them to have this upper GI contrast study. So you can see on the left, the stomach has been filled with contrast and then it has exited, showing a nice normal C loop for the duodenum where the DJ flexure is to the left of the L1 vertebrae in the transpyloric plane and that's normal rotation. On the other hand, uh, the picture on the right shows a, a typical picture of malrotation where the contrast exits the stomach. The first and second part of duodenum are normal, but as it comes across to the third and fourth part, the DJ flexure never gets across the midline and certainly not up to the level of the L1 vertebrae on the left. So this is diagnostic of malrotation and um, usually this baby would be offered a urgent LADS procedure. Okay, so this is a classic uh, upper GI contrast study showing mid-gut volvulus. You can see that the contrast has been given into the stomach and then has passed out of the stomach into the first and second part of the duodenum. But instead of coming across and up to the position where the normal DJ flexure should be, in this case, you can see it twisting round like a ribbon on the right-hand side, and that's uh, diagnostic of uh, mid-gut volvulus. We know that about 50 to 70 percent of cases will present in the first month of life and up to about 90 percent by age one. But this should be included in the differential diagnosis of any child at any age um, who presents with a sudden collapse episode, uh, particularly if there's been any abdominal pain or green vomiting. Signs such as distension, abdominal wall erythema, pyrexia or even hematochesia would be considered extremely late signs and often mean that the baby's presenting in a state of septic shock and um, further necessitating the urgency of resuscitation and transfer to theatre. So many radiologists around the world are now using Doppler ultrasound to, to screen patients with potential mid-gut volvulus. Um, here in this image, you can see a classical whirlpool sign which uh, simply depicts the SMA and SMV vessels in a twisted pattern. And this would be uh, extremely sensitive and specific for midgut volvulus. So um, if performed correctly and present on the ultrasound, then you can un avoid the unnecessary delay of an upper GI contrast. And this patient would be taken directly to theater for a laparotomy. Obviously, if um, the ultrasound is non-diagnostic, then the patient would proceed to have a standard upper GI contrast to confirm or exclude the presence of malrotation or volvulus. So this is a typical appearance of a mid-gut volvulus at laparotomy. You can see the multiple twists to the base of the small bowel mesentery. Um, and the obvious um, compromised colour of the bile. We would hope that on untwisting the bile in this case, um, most of this bile would be viable. On the other hand, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, we see this when we get in and this is entire uh, necrosis of the midgut, um, which will all need to be resected and removed, leaving the baby with an extremely short uh, length of gut. And um, 
in some case, cases there is uh, debate about the viability of certain segments of the bile and um, we will often offer a second look laparotomy 24 to 48 hours after the first one if we're in any doubt about whether a segment of bile is viable or not. So having untwisted the bile and made sure of viability, we then usually proceed to a LAS procedure. So you can see here the, the basic steps of a LAS procedure. The first is to untwist. The second is to divide the LADS bands across the duodenum. And the third is then to widen the base of the mesentery to leave the bile in essentially a non-rotated position. Um, one uh, important step is whether or not the appendix should be removed. In most cases, most surgeons around the world would but that should be documented in the operation note very clearly. Okay, so moving on to the next case presenting to A&E, this time is an eight-month-old male who's been brought into the emergency department with a short history of vomiting, and his parents are concerned about how distressed he appears at times. In between times, he's becoming increasingly lethargic. So when we examine him, he's pretty quiet and his observations are essentially normal, apart from a, a low-grade tachycardia, but he certainly appears to have quite cool peripheries. When we examine his abdomen, there seems to be a fullness in the left upper quadrant. This would typically be described as a sausage-shaped mass. So blood in the nappy in the context of a child with intussusception would often be described as red current jelly-like stools. And this is a picture of red current jelly. More typically, in my experience, it simply is a frank red blood rather than actually looking like red current jelly. Um, but remember that the triad of vomiting, um, red current jelly stools and a palpable abdominal mass only actually occur in about 25% of cases of interception. So we have to, again, have quite a high index of suspicion for any child who presents with any of these features or um, particularly significant abdominal pain and distress with periods of lethargy in between. As you know, the typical age would be about three months to three years, but it can occur outside of this. And the key to management is early diagnosis and early aggressive resuscitation. So this child needs a surgeon urgently. And um, the first thing to do is to get uh, good IV access and resuscitate the child as per APLS guidelines. Uh, this uh, scenario of interception often requires multiple fluid boluses, starting with 20 per kilo, and then I normally give 10 per kilo uh, uh, boluses thereafter. But many children with significant interception will require quite a large volume of fluid before being stable enough to be transferred. And while in adult trauma, we talk about the CT scanner being a donut of death, we certainly do not want under-resuscitated uh, children with interception being sent round for an ultrasound scan. In fact, if I would argue that if you haven't thought about giving significant amounts of fluid, you probably have the wrong diagnosis. So the typical ultrasound findings uh, for interception would be a target sign, such as in this picture, and a pseudo-kidney sign, such as is in this picture. So thankfully, between 90 and 95% of cases of interception can be successfully treated without an operation. We often consider broad-spectrum antibiotics prior to any reduction of, um, 
attempt and the two main ways of doing this would be an air reduction enema such as in this picture or a saline reduction enema under ultrasound guidance which would be more typically performed now in 2022. In this uh, picture you can see that the Foley catheter has been placed in the rectum and air has been given in a retrograde fashion uh, under pressure to push the intussusceptum which is the bit inside here back into the right colon. Now this hasn't been a successful reduction yet because this needs to go back into the small bowel and you need to get lots of air filling the small bowel loops. So sometimes if there's been a partial reduction the patient remains well we might bring them back to the ward um, give them a couple more fluid boluses and then in a couple of hours time try again in an attempt to avoid unnecessary surgery. Like I said more typically now, we perform ultrasound-guided saline reduction enemas with radiologists, sometimes in theatre under general anaesthetic, sometimes just in the x-ray department, depending on the age and uh, clinical status of the child. And this has been found to be slightly more successful than an air reduction enema. And then for those children who have failed a radiological procedure, then generally speaking, they need uh, an operation in theatre with a surgeon. So uh, traditionally this would have been done as an open operation. Now increasingly people are doing it with minimum invasive techniques and this is just a nice picture to show what an intussusception looks like. So you can see the intussusceptum is the proximal bile that's um, telescoping inside the intussipians which is the receiving more distal bit of bile and usually I would use the laparoscope to try and pull this apart. Oftentimes the reason it is not being successful in terms of radiological reduction is that there are pathological lead points or compromised bile that just mean it's impossible even at laparotomy to reduce it, in which case we do a small resection of primary anastomosis. We know that the recurrence rate is about 10% um, and about a third of these will occur in the first 24 hours and certainly the majority within six months. Generally speaking, we'll feed the children um, uh, very shortly after a air reduction enema or the following day after surgical reduction. So a whistle stop tour of three very common uh, emergencies presenting to the paediatric surgical department and um, I'm grateful for your attention. Be happy to take any questions that uh, anyone has. Thanks.